What is going on, everybody? This is Eric Elliott. We're back with another episode of Not the Refocus Nutrition Podcast, the Chasing Fitness Podcast. So it's been a long time since I've recorded one of these. Uh, it's something that I knew I wanted to get back to, but just with the way that life was, there was a lot of things that came up, and I was finding that the podcast became more work than it was actually something I wanted to produce. So I wanted to get back into podcasting when I thought that I was ready and liked actually doing the podcast. Um, it's not that I didn't like doing the interviews with people. I love talking to the new different guests we'd have on, but it's just a lot of work to put it together. Um, and I think that's something that I needed to find a passion for again, which is why I'm bringing it back. Uh, it's one of the things that I, I miss a lot was giving away content that was valuable to people who I may or may not ever work with. Um, so that's something I'm trying to bring back on a somewhat regular basis. I think we're going to start out with a bi-weekly uh, release with the episode. Uh, and we're just going to go from there and see how see how that goes, see how that goes with guests, uh, and, and really see how you guys are enjoying it and enjoying the feedback uh, within the podcast. So now in this crazy weird quarantine time where we're kind of going back to some regular life and you might be just out enjoying a walk enjoying this podcast or maybe not even enjoying this podcast uh we're going to listen to this first one with uh Stephen Gane uh he is the author of The Hungry Brain uh it's an awesome book it just goes very well into depths about uh why we eat, why we overeat, why we eat what we eat, and why we crave what we crave. And I think there's a lot of different distinctions in there that people are going to get a lot of value out of this podcast. So if you are that person, guys, please reach out to me to let me know how much you like this podcast or how much you hate this podcast. And uh, we can hopefully grow it and make it better uh, every week and every time we drop a new episode. That's it for now, guys. Take care. Awesome. And we are back, guys, with another guest another awesome guest this time uh one of the the biggest researchers i've been following his work's been following for a long time and that is steven guiana am i pronouncing that correctly steven it's stefan guiana stefan guiana um thanks so much for coming on stefan i appreciate it so much uh to start off with uh because i know there's so much that you've done in your career can you kind of just give us a little brief synopsis of uh, what you studied? I know I, I mentioned earlier as we got on the call that I, I read, read your book. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about your research and uh, how you got into this field. Yeah, certainly. So I began my research career in neuroscience at the University of Washington. And at the time, I was studying a neurodegenerative disease that was a fairly rare disease. And um, I ended up wanting to study something that was more common and more impactful. And but I wanted to continue in neuroscience because that had been my interest for a long time. And so I switched as a postdoc to studying the uh, neuroscience of body fatness. And this was actually a really great fit. A lot of people don't realize that the brain actually regulates body fatness. Uh, but it does in the same way that it regulates a lot of other things that happen in the body, like blood pressure and digestion and other things of that nature. And um, so 
during the course of that research, I came to see that there was a lot of really important information going on in the neuroscience world that wasn't really trickling down to the public, uh, particularly information related to eating behavior and body fatness. And so I had my own little niche of research that I was working on. Um, but at the same time, I was reading more broadly about all the research that other researchers were doing and kind of trying to piece that together into a bigger story about what's going on with overeating and obesity. I mean, overeating is really a, a kind of a puzzling thing, right? Like no one, I mean, we know calories relate to body fatness, right? Like that's not seriously in dispute, but I mean, and we, you know, no one wants to eat excess calories. No one wants to eat foods that are obviously unhealthy and, you know, harm their health and harm their waistlines. And yet we do that all the time. So why is that? You know, that's kind of a, a conundrum, right? Why do we choose to engage in behaviors that are, you know, on some level we don't want to engage in, mm -hmm. leading to outcomes that we also don't want? So that's kind of what my books um, sets about to answer is that bigger question of why do we overconsume? Why do we gain weight over time? And what are the brain systems that cause that behavior? Because ultimately, eating behavior is a behavior and like any other behavior, it's generated by the brain. So to understand why we eat too much and why we eat too much of specifically of unhealthy foods, we have to look at the brain if we wanna really understand that. So that's kind of what I did with my book was take a brain centric perspective. Um, and just to be clear so everyone knows, most of the information in my book is not information that I personally generated in my own laboratory research. Most of it is information that other people generated uh, and that I just, you know, compiled. Um, but there is some of my own research in that book as well. Yeah. And, and for those of you who don't know the book that he's referencing, and I haven't named the title yet, it's The Hungry Brain that, he, that you wrote. And that's the, the book that, I'm, that he's referencing. Um, but one of the things I thought that was awesome about that book is that, you know, with a lot of research, it, if, if you're just the common lay person, you don't really, it's hard to read research sometimes, but I found that book very, very easy to read insofar as you, you were just able to bring up uh, research to whatever point you had, explain it, explain what they did, and then explain what it means to whatever point you're trying to make. So I think that was super awesome to uh, to see just going through and read, reading that content. Uh, it was really awesome. To start off with, um, I think it's important to kind of go to some really rudimentary concepts or, or definitions within uh, the hungry brain and just talking about what is hunger first. So what is hunger uh, as defined by what you would define it within your within your book? Because I think it's something that people don't necessarily understand, especially from an evolutionary perspective. So do you mean like what's the definition of hunger or do you mean what causes hunger? Uh, start with what's the definition of hunger. Okay. A lot of people will confuse that with cravings. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So hunger is a motivational state that drives us toward eating, but is not a specific, is not specific to specific types of food. So when you feel hungry, generally you can be satisfied by a wide variety of calorie containing foods, right? Like if you're just feeling hungry, you don't necessarily need one particular type of food to satisfy that hunger. 
you could eat a variety of different things to satisfy that hunger. And that's as opposed to a craving, which is a food-specific motivational state. So they're both motivational states, but with the craving, you're saying, hey, I want this particular food right now, and if I ate this other different food, that would not satisfy my current motivational state. So um, that's the difference between hunger and cravings. And hunger is a state that relates to the energy status of your body, whereas cravings, it's somewhat related, but only indirectly. So you might have more cravings when you're hungry, but you can have cravings without having any hunger and without having any need for energy in your body. So hunger basically is a signal. It's a motivational state. It's a feeling that indicates that your brain thinks that your energy status in your body is low. So, and of course it can still happen in people who carry a lot of body fat. So, but it's about the brain's perception that energy stores are less, are lower than where the brain wants them to be. So that can arise. Basically there are two things that contribute to that. There's um, long-term input from circuits that measure and respond to your level of body fatness. And that kind of sets the tone on the short-term signal, which is coming from brain regions that regulate your hunger and fullness. So basically there are brain regions that tell you, you know, how much, how much do you want food right now? How much food is it going to take for you to feel satisfied at a meal? And then you have these long-term circuits that are kind of setting the gain on those short, on that short-term activity. So basically, um, and, and let me expand on this a little bit more. So the energy status yeah. of your body, there are a lot of different signals that your brain is paying attention to to determine its assessment of your body's energy status. So there's, there's that long-term signal coming your, from your body fat stores. That signal is communicated to the brain via a hormone called leptin that circulates in the blood proportionally to how much fat you carry. And then there are shorter term signals coming from the digestive tract. So for example, the, the, the primary signal is nerve impulses coming up the vagus nerve from the digestive tract to your brainstem. And those signals tell your brain how much food you've just eaten and what is in that food. In addition, you're receiving these really fast signals that are coming from your, your mouth that's telling your brain what you're eating as you're taking the bites. So all those things come together and your brain does this overall assessment of what's the energy status right now of, the, of your body overall. Do you need additional energy relative to what the brain thinks you should have? And then if the brain thinks that you don't have enough energy, it sends a signal to stimulate you to eat. And that signal is hunger, the motivational state and the, the feeling of hunger. So, um, yeah, basically, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I think there's like there's so much there to unpack for sure. Like I could almost write ten questions down after that for sure. One of the things that I think you kind of said towards the start that I found was very interesting. I think a lot of people will find interesting as well is that cravings can happen in in the absence of hunger, and often oftentimes they do happen in the in the absence of hunger. Is is that the reason or is it one of the reasons that we are in the obesity crisis that we are today? I think it's certainly a reason. I mean, essentially you can conceptualize of 
you can you can talk about the reasons why we eat falling into two different categories and the technical term for these two categories is homeostatic eating and non-homeostatic eating but the uh an easier way to think about that is things related to your body's energy status and things that are not related to your body's energy status so if you're hungry because you haven't eaten in a while that is homeostatic eating if you if you then eat that is homeostatic eating in other words it's related to your body's energy status but if it's the end of a big meal and you just had your steak and potatoes and salad and you're full and then you know you just ate a ton of calories and then dessert comes out and it's ice cream or it's you know brownie or whatever and you eat that because you like to eat those things that is obviously not something that is driven by a need to bring energy into your body you already have plenty of energy you already ate too much energy that is non-homeostatic eating so that's driven by factors other than energy need and there are a lot of things that relate to this i mean you know one of them is a food's really delicious obviously that's gonna make us more motivated to eat in a manner that is independent of its energy value and often independent of our hunger there's social eating you know maybe you'll eat just because you're in a social situation mm -hmm. and that has nothing to do with how hungry you feel there's consumption of alcohol we don't drink a beer or you know whiskey because we feel hungry because we need those calories we drink it for the effects of the alcohol and so there there are many different things or you know something's just close at hand and it's really convenient or it's lunchtime and you always eat at this particular time there's a lot of things that go into us eating at times when our body does not need energy and is not even sending us a signal that it thinks it needs energy. So that again is non-homeostatic eating would be the technical term for that. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, and obviously one of those factors that is non-homeostatic is uh, how good food tastes. So if food is really delicious, we're going to tend to eat more of it regardless of how hungry we feel. And there, there are other factors that, that are like that. But I think there are a lot of these things in the modern world that push us to overconsume inappropriately. In other words, they push us to eat food in a manner that is decoupled from our true energy needs. Yeah, and I think it's, it's probably fair to say, too, that over the last you know, 100 years or more, the rise in non homeostatic eating options has been dramatically increased. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Just because I mean, you have so much options these days, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the number of items in a, in a typical mm -hmm. grocery store, for example, I mean, today it's in the thousands. There's literally thousands of different foods for you to choose from so whatever is your favorite thing in the world it's probably going to be there somewhere in the grocery store um choice of food was a lot more limited 100 years ago 200 years ago you basically ate whatever was around or whatever was available i should say and um people you know the diet was less varied and people didn't have most people didn't have the money to buy a lot of the things that we eat regularly today so if you go back to the 1930s, um, people were spending about 
a quarter or more of their disposable income on food in the United States. And today that number is 10%. So the, you know, food is just massively, massively cheaper than it ever has been in the United States and other affluent countries. We like to complain about how much food costs, but truthfully, it's never been this cheap in all of human history. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, uh, yeah, and it's more ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I mean, you go to a hardware store and at the checkout <laughs> aisle, there's candy all over the place. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there are, I think, as you said, there are a lot more opportunities for non-homeostatic eating. In other words, eating for reasons other than you having an energy need. Yeah, like I think that there's, I mean, there's, there's other ways to get into it as well, but there's, there's few times I can even think of myself of eating that I, I had to for a homeostatic reason. Like there's, there's no lack of resources there to have that, that food to make sure that I'm eating enough to sustain myself. Um, when it comes down to that variance idea, not, maybe not idea is the right word, but we talk a little bit about, I, the, the chapter I found very interesting or section, if you will, in the book was talking about the buffet effect. Um, because it's one thing that if you don't, if you unconsciously go to a buffet, it, it, you don't understand. But when you read that little chapter, you're very clear on why that works. Um, and I know some people have talked about it when it comes to like professional eating competitions. You legitimately, if you're tired of eating, say, a hot dogs, you find something sweet and salty. So can you talk a little bit about um, the different options or, or ways that our hunger is cued that we can kind of override that uh that i think it, i believe it's the ghrelin receptor to stop or tell us when we're full so that we are, we keep going right we instead if we were eating something sweet and we're full of that we go on to something um savory or, or what have you just choosing the, the taste a little bit different to create that variance that makes things a little bit worse when it comes to overeating yeah so variety if you look at the animal studies they're really clear on this. Food variety is a major factor that drives not only total calorie intake, but body fatness. So if you, I think these studies maybe were done by Barbara Rolls, who's a, a um, well-respected nutrition researcher back in her early days. Um, she, I, I believe it was her, not positive about this, but there are rodent studies where they gave rodents different tempting calorie-dense unhealthy foods like uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was like cookies or salami or, you know, a couple of other like calorie dense uh, foods individually first. So each animal only had access to one of those things at a time. And then there was another condition where the animal had them, um, they would kind of rotate through at different times. And then there was another condition where they had all of them available all the time. And the animals that had um, them only available individually gained some amount of weight relative to animals that didn't have those foods available. And I should, I should specify also, all of the animals had access to regular uh, rodent chow. So this was on top of their regular rodent pellets. Um, so yeah, those animals that had one food each gained a certain amount of weight, but the animals that had all of them available simultaneously gained a lot more weight a lot faster than any of the others. So basically, you know, having that variety per se was actually a major driver of intake. And the human studies 
are more limited, but the evidence that we do have is very consistent with that. So if you put people in a situation where um, they can eat several different foods with several different flavor profiles in one meal, they will tend to eat more total calories at that meal than if you provided foods with only one flavor profile um, at that meal. And so this relates to a property that's called sensory specific satiety. That's the technical term for it. And basically what that means is that we get quote unquote full on a particular flavor profile, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not quote unquote full for a food with a different flavor profile. And this is part of the explanation why we're happy to eat dessert even after a huge meal. It has a different flavor profile. So, you know, if, you ha if your meal consisted of all cake and then they bring out another slice of cake, you're not going to want to eat that after you're already full on cake. But if your meal consisted of steak and potatoes and salad and then they bring out cake, then you're like, oh, yeah, let, bring it on. I want this, this cake, right? That's a different flavor profile. And this explains why we tend to stuff our faces at buffets. You have an enormous variety and every food, every bite could be a different food. So, um, yeah, so, and I think this also goes a long way toward explaining what you see happening in people on the carnivore diet. You see, you know, people eat nothing but meat and they lose a bunch of weight. Obviously, there's a lot of protein. That's probably also a factor. Um, but they'll, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, this is some special property of meat that caused this to happen. But you see basically the same thing on all potato diets. You see people eating nothing but potatoes and they lose a ton of weight too. They don't have any hunger, their health improves. So you actually see really similar things on very dissimilar diets. And the commonality is that they're only eating one thing. That's all they're allowing themselves to eat. So I don't think that's just about variety, but I think variety is part of the explanation for why, um, why we have those types of observations. So yeah, I think, I think variety is a pretty important thing. And variety certainly has greatly increased in the modern food environment. Again, I cited the example of a grocery store. I mean, can you imagine a hunter-gatherer walking into a grocery store? It would, be, it would be like, you know, the promised land for them. It would be insane. <laughs> um, but yeah, and if you look at hunter-gatherer diets across the entire year, they have fairly diverse diets. They might rely on 100 different species uh, of plants and animals. But if you look at the day-to-day, -day, it's not nearly so diverse. So the hunter-gatherer diet on any particular day is generally going to focus on only a few items. Maybe one species of animal that was killed that particular day. Maybe, you know, one species of tuber that was dug up. Maybe one species of nuts. You know, one type of fruit. And of course, they're very limited in their ability to embellish those foods. They're, you know, hunter-gatherers not sautéing onions and, you know, baking things at 350 with a crust, you know, a special crust. Like, they're literally either eating things raw or cooking them on the fire or at a maximum pounding and boiling. They're not putting salt in it. Often they're not using any flavoring. So they're preparing it in a very, very simple way. So, and that's the way that our ancestors ate for almost all of human existence. And I mean, just thinking about this, the variety is one aspect of why their diets were very different. But um, 
just like going through what it's like to be a hunter gatherer eating, you can see that it was really radically different. And that's the kind of environment that our brains are calibrated toward, not the one that we have today where we have these ubiquitous calorie dense, refined, delicious foods that have been, you know, really finely crafted to maximally stimulate the motivational circuits in the human brain. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think one of the things that I wanted to ask about was the following that train of logic with variance. Um, does the, Hey, I can't hear you right now. I think you, you might be far away from the mic or something. Sorry. Do you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Um, sorry. I was just saying, does that, would that train of logic, uh, follow why, uh, people would find that the uh, ketogenic diet would, would give them less hunger cues than other than higher carb diets. Cause I know that's been anecdotally said, um, from a lot of people who try the ketogenic diet. Yeah. Um, this one's kind of hard to suss out. I know there have been a lot of anecdotes about people saying, that you know their hunger is better controlled and their cravings are better controlled on uh, ketogenic diets versus lower fat diets, um, and certainly I I would never tell a person that their experience is wrong. You know what they experienced mm -hmm. is what they experienced, but it's kind of hard to find support for that in the scientific literature. If you look if you look at randomized controlled trials where they randomize people to low fat or low carb diets. You typically see pretty similar dropout rates. If you measure hunger, you see people are self-reporting hunger at similar rates. Um, and there's not really much of an indication that there's a substantial difference in appetite or calorie intake between those two diets. Uh, there's some suggestion that it might be somewhat different in the first like couple months of the diet, but by the time you get out to six, 12 months, those things typically have washed out um, in the diet trial. So I'm not really sure what to make of that. Either there's some kind of difference uh, in how these diet trials are being conducted versus how most people are using the diets in, in everyday life, or, um, or we're just being, you know, misled by anecdotes where like, we're just focusing on certain types of anecdotes and not paying attention to others. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Cause that, that is something that you're right. I've read the literature on as well and it doesn't always support that, but I hear it from like my parents do keto. They like it and they say they're less hungry. So uh, like I said, I never try to tell people they're wrong, but at the same time, it's, it's interesting what the research says um, with the last point kind of on variance. Um, from a, from a application perspective is the, is the application to that type of advice, that type of research to just eat bland food and make things boring or how do you make, how do you live in a world of variance um, so that you're not over consuming calories all the time and you're able to, to not, whether that's maintain weight or lose weight the way that you, uh, you want to. Yeah. Well, I think that it helps to bring our diet, closer in line with the types of properties that our ancestors may have may have had in their diets and um you know typically when we think about ancestral diets we're thinking about diet composition that's been like the the traditional way of looking at it like mm -hmm. with lauren cordain's work um 
where it's like, Hey, what, you know, what macronutrients was it? How much protein, how much carbs, what type, you know, how much fiber, what types of micronutrients, what fat composition, et cetera, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that is part of the picture, but I think what's also part of the picture is, um, how that food is, um, stimulating the brain, how it's interacting with the brain and behavior. So how it's, you know, how, um, it is interacting with us in the food environment. So for example, do you have foods visible around your house that make it more likely that you will consume them? Um, how tempting are those foods? Um, are they foods that are so tempting to you that they're going to promote overconsumption? Um, and that sort of thing. So it's, to me, there's a bigger picture that's not just about the nutrient profile of the foods, but it's about the um, physical properties of those foods, how they interact with motivational circuits in the brain, and how they're presented in the, in the food environment. Um, so that's kind of the, the big picture. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I see things. So I think you know, the, the, the palatability issue, the issue of how delicious food is, is kind of a tightrope that we have to walk because the truth is that most people in a modern affluent society, we're accustomed to having our palates entertained at every meal. And we, most of us have a hard time handling when that entertainment goes away. So most people, I don't honestly don't think would be able to handle a real hunter gatherer diet it would be to them, it would be repetitive, it would be bland, and often simply unpalatable. And so I think, but I think there's a balance we can strike. Because some foods in the modern environment are so seductive, that they make it very hard for us to control our behavior. So the way I like to think about that is the food, it has to be satisfying. So not necessarily delicious, but satisfying. You can't, at the end of your meal, you don't want to feel like, oh, I deprived myself and um, I wish I could eat X, Y, Z. I feel unsatisfied. So you want to eat foods that are satisfying, but still simple. Um, and so I think essentially the strategy is to stick with simple, lower calorie density, whole foods. So things like, um, fresh unprocessed meats and eggs and fruits, whole fresh fruits, vegetables, tubers, whole grains, legumes, uh, like beans and, um, and lentils. Um, by the way, hunter gatherers ate lots of legumes. Um, and those are the types of foods that are basically our motivational circuits in our brain and our hunger circuits and all the other circuits that go into our eating behavior evolved with co-evolved with. Right. And so if you're cooking simple, unrefined food or minimally refined food, your brain is going to be able to self-regulate your calorie intake a lot easier. And then putting yourself in a food environment where you're not surrounded by food cues is also going to be helpful. Is that possible in today's society? 
I think it's challenging, but I think we can certainly do better than most of us do. So, um, you know, I think the food environment thing, I think is something that a lot of people just don't really think about that much. It's It's a simple thing, but it's not something that there's a lot of awareness of in the popular sphere. So, you know, you might have people who generally they have healthy food in their house, but if you walk into their kitchen, there's three or four items on the counter that maybe it's a fairly healthy food like salted nuts or something, but it's in an open bowl and it's really easy to grab. And so maybe they end up over consuming that anyway, even though it's a relatively healthy food. So maybe they're not achieving the body composition goals that they have for themselves, not because they're not eating healthy food, not because they're not eating unrefined food, but because their food environment is pushing them to overconsume the healthy food that they do have around them. And so at home, for example, you know, not having visual food cues in your environment, not having food out that's easy to grab, uh, easy to see, and food that's tempting to you is helpful. And then to the extent that you're able to also do that at work. And of course, you know, different people have different levels of control over their food environment, both at home and at work. But I think that's certainly something to aspire to is to have a clean food environment in both places that's not constantly feeding you food cues, because those food cues are going to increase your probability that you will eat. You know, very few people have the iron will to resist temptation all the time every day. So the the better way to do it is you set up your food environment so that it's not generating temptation for you all the time. And then there's, of course, uh, food cues on television, uh, on billboards and that sort of thing. I don't know what it's like up in Canada, but in the United States, the average American average American sees about 20 food ads per day on TV alone. So we're getting fed these food cues all the time in our surroundings. And I can tell you that American food manufacturers aren't paying more than $10 billion a year on food ads. They aren't, they aren't wasting their money. They're doing it because it works. And so don't let them control your eating behavior like that. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of something I talk to nutrition clients about all the time. It's just talking about like the fact that when you're eating, you know, packaged foods, um, the the people that are behind creating those products are not creating them so that you stop at one and only eat the appropriate amount for your body and your 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 exercise level. They're making it highly palatable so that you want to eat more than you could possibly even need in one package or two, and just keep going into the next package or the next flavor. Um, that's why Oreos come in. Like in Canada, they come in like seven flavors. And then in the States, when I was down there, it was like way more than that. So there's a, there's reason behind all that. One of the things you've kind of brought up the entire time uh, through is the, the idea of um, how we get this learned behavior of hunger and eating practices, because I think that's something that people don't understand that it is a learned behavior. Um, how we do it and that comes from the time you're born but it also comes from even the time you before you were born in terms of how our evolution was created so how does that that hunter-gatherer make us attracted to calorie dense options because it it that's it sounds like in terms of the way that 
you've talked before as well as uh, in your work, that's one of the roots of the problem is just our attraction, our innate attraction to uh, calorie dense options with food. Yeah, sure. So think about this as an engineer. Let's say you're an engineer and you're trying to create an organism that will be able to survive and thrive on the African savanna in the wild. So you know that an, you know that your organism is going to need energy. You know that's one of the main things they're going to need. And you know that the primary available forms of energy in that environment are carbohydrate, fat, and protein. And so what you need to do as an engineer is you need to design an organism that is motivated to seek foods that contain carbohydrate, fat, and protein. But you can't hardwire, you know, there's thousands of possible foods in that environment. You can't hardwire the nutritional composition of every food into that animal's brain. There's not enough space, uh, you know, it'd be just too hard to evolve that. So what you do is you create a system that learns through trial and error which food contains how much carbohydrate, protein, and fat. So you have an organism that learns through trial and error through consuming those foods what their nutritional properties are. And furthermore, you also have to make the organism tune its level of motivation to the amount of energy in a food. So you don't want to have an organism that spends three days trying to you know, find a few leaves, you want to have an organism that's willing to spend three days hunting a large mammal that has a lot of protein and fat on it um, and maybe spend five minutes gathering a few leaves that doesn't contain very much calories. So the uh, value of the food in terms of its calorie content has to be calibrated to the motivational level of the organism. And it turns out that's exactly how humans are designed. What I just described, how you would des design an organism, is how we are designed. So we have receptors in our gut that detect carbohydrate, fat, and protein, as well as a couple of other things, uh, salt and glutamate, which is that meaty-tasting amino acid. And um, those signals, when we eat food that contain those things, they're picked up by these receptors and they send signals up to the brain that release dopamine. And what dopamine does is it causes us to learn to be motivated to obtain the foods that contain those things. So when you eat a slice of pizza, your brain gets wind of all the wonderful things in it, that dopamine starts to spike. And then the next time you see pizza, you're really going to be motivated to eat it. You're going to experience a craving. And of course, all of this is happening non-consciously. You're not aware of this reinforcement process happening in your brain, but it is very powerful. And so what you see is around the world, people, everyone, or all cultures appreciate fat and salt and carbohydrate, sugar, um, and protein, but every culture develops different flavor preferences that are associated with those things. So for example, people in China are gonna be disgusted by the smell of strong French cheeses. People in France don't necessarily appreciate, you know, Szechuan cooking, uh, authentic Szechuan cooking. So, um, but all of those things, the reason is that all of, those th all of those things, the flavors and the textures that are specific to a culture are learned via their repeated association with fat, 
protein, um, carbohydrate, salt, and glutamate. So basically that dopamine release over time causes you to acquire a taste for all the flavors and the textures and all the things that are associated with it. So that's how we learn. And the higher the concentration of those nutrients I mentioned that cause dopamine release, the more motivating they are. So if you're eating something like, uh, let's say, plain brown rice that has some carbohydrate, not a whole lot else, um, that stimulates dopamine and not a super high concentration of it, you're going to get a lot less of a motivational response than if you're eating something like pizza or a brownie that has much higher concentrations of those dopamine stimulating nutrients. So basically, and, and then when you start combining those things, then you get foods that really release a ton of dopamine. So like a brownie, for example, has starch, it has uh, sugar, it has fat, it, ha it may have salt. And all of those things coming together in that combination really drive dopamine wild in our brains. And that in many people leads to these exaggerated cravings and, you know, eating drives that make it really difficult to control their food intake in a healthy way. And I think to some extent, this affects almost all of us. Like, you know, I bet there's not too many people listening today who have not, who, I bet there's not very many people who um, have never had the experience of having a hard time stopping themselves from continuing to eat a food just because of how seductive it is. Absolutely. You know what? Yep. Yeah. And every, every person has their own problem food. Sometimes it's, you know, potato chips or tortilla chips. Sometimes it's ice cream. Sometimes it's pizza. But I think almost all of us have been there where, we're eating that food and we're like, man, I've had enough to eat. I'm not even really hungry anymore, but I'm having a hard time stopping myself from continuing to do this. And that generally is not going to be happening with celery sticks. It's not going to be happening with plain lentils. It's not going to be happening with, you know, plain chicken breasts. That's generally going to be happening with foods that combine carbohydrate and fat together and maybe some sugar, maybe some salt um, in combinations that really spike the dopamine up and get those motivational systems going. Yeah, no, that's a very good point too. Just the amount of, the amount of things that you can combine to get um, those dopamine receptors, as you mentioned, going. Because it's, it's, it's right, you're, you're, I've never met the person that said, God, I ate too much celery, but you could definitely do it if you combined it with like peanut butter or something like that, where you're getting, again, more of those different options, especially in the peanut butter, where I, I know many clients that have, you know, like I said, sit, sat down with a jar of peanut butter and a, and a spoon and like run to town on it just because there's, there's so much to, to get there. One of the questions I had for you kind of reading your work was talking about kind of the addictive qualities of food, if you will, because I know there's, there's so many people um, that will make the claim that I'm addicted to sugar. So where does like where does the research sit on that, and and is sugar by itself addicting, or are there other qualities in in uh, combination with sugar in most of the things we eat that make it quote unquote addictive to people? Yeah. So first of all, the concept of food addiction in the scientific community remains somewhat controversial. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people who have argued and published research suggesting that food addiction as, as a true clinical entity, similar to like drug addiction or gambling addiction, is, uh, exists and is a major problem, is fairly prevalent. And then there are others that say that really aren't comfortable using the term addiction around food. Um, but I will say that pretty much everyone agrees that there are people who show addiction-like behaviors around certain types of food. So I think pretty much everyone agrees that, you know, even if we're not going to technically call it addiction, there is definitely problematic behaviors that in some ways resemble addiction that emerge around certain types of food. And of course, some people are more susceptible than others, as with everything. Um, But yeah, so I, you know, where do I come down on this issue? I think probably it is fair to call it addiction. I mean, fundamentally addiction, or at least sometimes to call it addiction, fundamentally to me, addiction is a hard to control uh, hard to control reward driven behavior that is harming your life. So, you know, lots of people are kind of mildly addicted to caffeine. That's probably not really doing any harm. So I I don't know. Uh, or I should say lots of people are mildly dependent on caffeine. Uh, it's not really harming them. And so I wouldn't really call that an addiction in the clinical sense. Whereas, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, you have, you know, heroin and meth and those types of things where people are really doing their lives great harm through these um, behaviors that they are unable to control due to mass, the massive amount of dopamine. Or I shouldn't say they're unable to control them. They have a very hard time controlling them because of the massive dopamine release that those mm-hmm. substances cause and therefore reinforcing their behaviors. And so, um, I mean, I think it's very obvious that a lot of people eat foods that are clearly unhealthy and that they know are unhealthy. So they're obviously harming themselves. They're, you know, in the United States, more than half of people at some time in their lives will develop obesity. I mean, that's a crazy figure, more than half um, at some point in their life. And that's not just overweight either. That's obesity. Yeah, obesity. Exactly. Not overweight. Although if you include overweight, it's like 70 plus percent, I think. That's crazy. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So clearly people are doing themselves great harm through behaviors that they have a hard time controlling. I mean, that's exactly what's, what's happening with our eating behavior. And so to me, you know, whether or not we want to call, use the label addiction on that, it certainly resembles it in broad strokes. So, um, anyway, but I, I want to acknowledge and recognize that in the scientific community, whether to use that term or not is still controversial. Um, so let's turn to sugar. So I don't know anyone who just spoons, you know, (laughs) plain granulated sugar. Um, I don't think most people would find that enjoyable. Um, I think the closest analogies you could find are like sugar sweetened beverages because nutritionally there's not a whole lot in those besides sugar um there is also caffeine in many of them which enhances the um dopamine stimulation so it's kind of sugar plus caffeine in a lot of them um so that's part of the picture 
but I think sugar sweetened beverages are probably about the closest you could come. Um, and then there's hard candies, which, you know, some people like, but I don't think are really people's, most people's favorite candies. Generally chocolate type candies are a lot more popular. Um, and if you look at the foods that are most commonly craved, there have been studies on this. They administer questionnaires. You can just ask people what foods do you crave most often? And you can look at it from a food addiction standpoint too. And you can say, which foods are the most likely to trigger addiction like eating behaviors. And basically you see the same thing in these types of, in both of those types of studies, you see that the most common types of foods are combinations of fat and carbohydrate, either sweet or savory. Chocolate is the most commonly craved food of all. And so they're not just sugar. They're combinations of dopamine stimulating nutrients. And if you look at the foods that are just sugar, they're not usually high on the list of things that people crave or that people get addicted to. Mm -hmm. So if you have sugar without fat, yes, there are some people who will strongly crave those foods. And yes, there are some people who will experience addiction like behaviors toward those foods, but it's not um, the most common scenario. By far the most common scenario is fat plus carbohydrate, either in a sweet or in a savory context. And cravings to non-sweet fat and carb foods, like you know, potato chips would be a great example, or french fries, those are about just as common as cravings to sweet and fatty foods. So things like you know, brownies and ice cream and things. So I think what's going on, really, really what drives cravings and addiction-like behaviors is combinations of dopamine stimulating nutrients that's really the 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 most powerful um trigger um and that's what we see in study after study after study looking at it from various angles but i think where we are today culturally um you know right now people are very focused on the harms of sugar on carbs more generally but especially on sugar um, just the public perception is that sugar is like the really bad thing that we need to be worrying about right now. And so when people conceptualize unhealthy foods, they associate that with sugar. So when someone thinks about a donut, they're going to think, oh, the sugar in that is what's bad, not the sugar plus the fat plus the starch when they think about ice cream or brownies, or whatever, they're going to think, oh, those are carbs. Those are bad carbs that have sugar in them. And that's their way of conceptualizing why they're bad. But in reality, it's more complex than that because you have this combination of dopamine stimulating nutrients. People don't think about the fat content in those foods uh, being part of the equation. But it's, you know, it's not just in the research, it's also in the common sense. If you think about it, you know, imagine, just imagine yourself sitting down to a bowl of ice cream. So first you're sitting down to a bowl of fat-free ice cream, no fat in it at all. Um, it would probably taste all right. You know, it would be sweet. Um, it would, it would taste okay. I, I don't know how much of it personally, I probably wouldn't eat that much of it. I wouldn't be that interested in it. Um, but I'd probably have a little bit. Now imagine yourself sitting down to a bowl of ice cream that has no sweetness. It's just the cream. There's no sugar or sweetener. It would, it would taste good. Again, I would have some of it, 
probably. I don't think I would be that interested. I don't think I would ever buy it. I don't think I would ever buy fat-free ice cream either. And now imagine yourself sitting down to a bowl of regular ice cream with the fat and the sugar. It's amazing. Like it's, it's way more seductive than either of those previous scenarios. So it's not just about the sugar or the fat. They're both making really important contributions to the seductiveness of foods. Um, that said, you know, if you want to exclude um, either carbohydrate or fat out of your diet, most of the carbohydrate or fat out of your diet, either one of those strategies can be, can be useful. So, you know, if you're cutting out one of the primary factors that drives dopamine release in the brain, yeah, that's going to help you control your calorie intake and your waistline. Uh, and it's probably going to help you control your hunger as well. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at was the, even if you look at it from a caloric perspective, I know that's something that uh, Lane Norton brings up a lot is like, are you addicted to the fat? Are you addicted to the sugar? Because you, there's sometimes there's, a, I, I remember taking a picture of a package of M&Ms um, and there was more calories coming from fat than there was uh, from carbohydrates. So uh, it's something to keep in mind. Like when yeah, it's trying to blame something, if you will, for what, why you're quote unquote addicted to it. Yeah. It's funny if you, you know, if you went back to the 1990s, this would all be framed very differently. So mm -hmm. a donut or M&Ms or ice cream would be viewed as fatty food and the, and the badness of that food would be associated with the fat content that is because that's where we were at culturally mm -hmm. at that time. But now things have shifted and we conceptualize the badness. We associate the badness with the carbohydrate and particularly the sugar. Absolutely. So only one other uh, question before we just kind of uh, digest some things and just some, some take home points for people. So if there was like three things that people could apply the knowledge from your work, your, your podcast today, but also just your book in general, what are some things that makes them able to kind of short circuit themselves, if you will, uh, to try and get away around the ways of regular society of overeating uh, highly palatable, um, highly marketed and highly uh, created foods, if you will. Yeah, so first of all is to control your food environment. We talked about that. So you yeah. reduce your cue exposure, which helps align your motivations and your behavior with your goals for yourself. Second thing is to eat predominantly, and this is, by the way, this is assuming that someone's goal is to try to control their body fatness, either Correct. reduce yeah. it or prevent it from increasing. Yeah. Of course, there are people with goals other than that, particularly very active individuals may have the opposite goal of eating more calories. So you can reverse some of this stuff. It works in the other direction too. Um, but if assuming that your goal is to have less body fat or not gain body fat, um, controlling your food environment, uh, eating lower calorie density, less refined foods. So just to make sure everyone understands what I mean by calorie density, um, that is the number of calories per gram of food or per volume of food. So basically it, it reflects primarily the amount of water and fiber that's in a food. So for example, if you have a bowl of oatmeal, 200 calories of oatmeal is, is like a fair volume of food. Whereas 200 calories of crackers, because there's no, there's very little water and less fiber, 
is not a lot of volume. So those two foods are going to take up a lot, a much different amount of space in your stomach. And you're going to feel more full eating the 200 calories of oatmeal than you did the 200 calories of crackers. So lower calorie density helps you feel full with fewer calories and unrefined food that is higher in protein. So I'm not going to, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go through all the reasons why unrefined food tends to favor a healthier or a, a lower calorie intake, but um, it does. And then the um, higher protein intake also helps you feel more satisfied with fewer calories, both in the short and long term. And then the third thing I would say is regular physical activity. So, you know, there's been a lot of uh, stuff in the news lately about, you know, in popular writing and stuff about how physical activity is really no good for weight loss. Well, I know you said that your audience has a lot of folks um, who do CrossFit, and I'm sure that everybody listening who does CrossFit knows people who have lost substantial amounts of weight primarily through physical activity. So it, I think it's been kind of exaggerated uh, the degree to which physical activity um, is effective ha has been, um, I would say, downplayed in the media relative to what the research suggests. Um, yes, it's probably not your number one most powerful tool for controlling body fatness, but it is a tool that does work um, sometimes and for some people more than others, but on average, it certainly contributes to weight control. Um, but more importantly, it has huge health benefits. So if you look at studies um, that, for example, measure the likelihood of developing diabetes, randomized controlled trials, so very strong study designs, you see physical activity is really good at preventing people from developing diabetes. It just does wonders for your metabolic health to be physically active on a regular basis. And... And then aside from that, there's just performance benefits. Like, you know, you can do the things you want to do with your body, whether that's, you know, sprinting after a bus or going on an intense hike or, you know, playing with your kids, whatever it is you want to do with your body and even your mind, physical activity on a regular basis is going to help you do that, especially as you age. Absolutely. I think all, all three of those things are really important, especially the way that you talk about how society has kind of mechanized uh, physical activity away from regular day life, right? Um, just the way that we commute, the way we do it, basically everything. We don't have to work harder than we, we want to. Um, thanks so much for coming on there, uh, Stefan. And one of the things I wanted to talk, talk to you about was that the project that we talked about earlier was the, the Red Pen project uh, that you mentioned. I thought it was really interesting, um, the Red Pen Review is just talking about the amount of information that comes out today, um, whether that's on podcasts, on documentaries like Game Changers, in books, there's so much of it that if you just watch it to the naked eye, it can all seem true from a different slant. Um, and part of what this, this research that you're putting out, this reviews that you put out is helping break that, break that, those things down, those books, those, that content down so that people can understand it. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing it up. So the organization and website is called Red Pen Reviews. 
And all of our material is available for free on our website, redpenreviews.org. And what we do is we publish expert reviews of popular health and, and nutrition books. And it's not an ordinary book review in that we review it using a standardized semi-quantitative method that assigns numerical scores. So it's, it's, it assigns numbers to scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness. So we have this defined standardized method that we go through that assigns the, uh, numbers to scientific claims that are made in the book. Uh, we look up 10 references randomly selected in the book and evaluate whether they've been accurately represented. And then we evaluate the healthfulness of the intervention that the book is proposing. And all of that gets turned into number scores and percentage bars that go at the top of the page. So you can land on the page for a book and in literally 10 seconds, you can have a good idea of what the evidence quality of that book is. And so we're, we're evaluating um, popular health and nutrition books, things that a lot of people may have heard of. Um, and we're just trying to be really careful, really unbiased about um, evaluating the evidence quality of those books because there's, no, there's literally no other place you can go to get this type of information. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the depth and the rigor and the, you know, limit, you know, less biased form that, that we deliver it. There is no other place that you can get that. And just to expand on the less biased thing, we, you know, there's no method that's completely unbiased and, you know, our scoring is inherently somewhat subjective. So I don't want to, I don't want to make the claim to people that it's completely unbiased because I don't think there is a method that is completely unbiased, but you have to consider what the alternative is, which is having no method at all to control bias and increase consistency and increase informativeness. So we've created this method that is specifically designed to accomplish those tasks. So we're taking concrete steps to move in that direction, whereas most book reviews aren't taking any steps in that direction at all. Yeah, no, I know. And I think that's like super informative, especially when it comes to the the research perspective, because there's oftentimes you'll have discussions with people where you'll say, you know, X study said this and people will say, you can find a study that says anything. Right. So um, it's, it, it's looking at it from a very sober perspective of what the real what the real research is showing us and what the uh, not just anecdotal or observational studies are showing us, but what also the randomized controlled trials and things like that nature that show us what actually is happening, what's occurring, um, what's what's true. So yeah, thank you so much for creating that resource first off and also coming on the podcast. Um, what's one thing you're uh, one thing you're excited you're working on right now, and also uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so. I'm really excited about this Red Pen Reviews project. Um, right now, I'm just doing a bunch of organizational things behind the scene, trying to get us uh, to be a 501c3 nonprofit, which is going to enhance our um, transparency and, and public trust and open up new fundraising opportunities for us. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, people can find me. I'm most active on my Twitter account. My Twitter handle is at WHSource. I also have a website at stephanguianet.com. Um, and yeah, those are the, the primary two ways to, to keep in touch with what I'm doing. 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. And uh, I'll be sure to uh, put the links to all that in the uh, bio for the episode. Great.